Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin. Interested in the Crypto Weekend Retreat I'm teaching with Meltem Demiris of CoinShares and Jala Jobin Putra of Future Perfect Ventures? If so, be sure to check out the show notes for the link to sign up. Also, Unchained is now on YouTube. You can find the most recent episodes there every week on the Unchained podcast channel. And if you're not yet subscribed to my weekly newsletter, go now to unchainedpodcast.com to sign up. CypherTrace makes it easy for exchanges and crypto businesses to comply with cryptocurrency anti-money laundering laws, avoid illegal sources of funds, and maintain healthy banking relationships. CypherTrace is helping you grow the crypto economy by keeping it safe and secure. On May 27th, I will be hosting a conversation about the future of finance and human rights at the Oslo Freedom Forum in Norway. As the world continues to move toward a cashless society, paper currency is disappearing. Companies like Facebook, Apple, and Tencent are becoming increasingly influential in the digital payment space. We'll discuss how individuals and companies can preserve and protect financial freedoms in the digital age. I'll be joined by Bitcoin author and educator Jimmy Song, CASA Chief Technology Officer Elena Vranova, Coin Center founder Jerry Brito, and Bitfury Group Vice Chairman George Kickbazing. To register to attend, you can visit oslofreedomforum.com today. Use the discount code UNCHAINED25 to get 25% off your ticket price. My guest today is Sharon Goldberg, co-founder and CEO of Arwen and computer science professor at Boston University. Welcome, Sharon. Hi, thanks for having me. So let's talk about Arwen, your new project. What problem are you trying to solve with Arwen? Right, so Arwen is a new way to trade at centralized exchanges. The idea is that you could trade on the centralized uh, crypto exchanges order book without trusting the exchange to custody your coins. And our notion of trustlessness is really strong. Um, we guarantee that even if the exchange is hacked in the middle of the trade, your coins should not be at risk. So what Arwen does is it cre- um, it's a cryptographic protocol that allows you to transact with the exchange and settle your transactions without ever having to um, put your coins in the custody of the exchange. And how did you come up with the idea for this protocol? Yeah, so that that's kind of like a long story, and I can I can sort of start at the beginning, which is my background and how I sort of got into this space. Um, I have a PhD in computer science focused on uh, cryptography and networking, um, and so really my my most fundamental background and how I got into my whole career is through cryptography, um, which I started in 2006. So. Um, when you uh, when you are sort of basically trained as a cryptographer, the, the kind of problems that you want to solve are you have two parties like A and B that wish to transact, but they don't trust each other. So it's usually Alice and Bob, and they want to do something, but Alice doesn't trust Bob, and Bob doesn't trust Alice. And so what cryptographers do is they build protocols to allow these two parties to communicate with each other without trusting each other. So that's kind of like the fundamental problem that I've been trained to solve for the last, you know, 13, 14 years. And so we came into the blockchain space um, uh, about, let's say, what, four or five years ago, 
um, where we started looking at the security of Bitcoin, the security of Ethereum, and 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 then um, getting into designing also protocols that build on top of blockchains. And so for me, with the background that I have, the very first question that I um, that I always ask is like, who do you need to trust in order to accomplish this particular goal? So when you look at the, the market right now of centralized exchanges, um, you regularly see, um, unfortunately, you see compromises of centralized exchanges where people's deposits on those exchanges are getting stolen, um, you know, starting with the Mt. Gox uh, hack, which is, you know, famous from a long time ago. Um, we're still seeing them. We recently saw Binance get hacked. Um, and basically what happens is that the coins that traders are depositing at the exchange are being uh, stolen by hackers. So essentially what's happening here is you have the trader being required to trust the exchange in order to trade. And so as a cryptographer, the first question you ask is, how can you allow the trader to trade on the exchange without having to trust the exchange with their coins? And that's really how we came up with Arwen, like the idea of, of transacting on a centralized exchange without needing to trust the exchange. And I want to go back to another piece of your bio that I thought was interesting, which is, I believe that you actually started in electrical engineering. And so how did you make the switch to cryptography? Oh, okay. Yeah. So when I started, it was like 1999 when I started school. So at the time, like I wasn't really, computer science wasn't so much on the map. So I studied electrical engineering. I went through this program called engineering science where you could choose what stream of engineering you wanted to do. And there were like civil engineering and nanotechnology, biotechnology. So I ended up choosing electrical engineering. And what I liked about electrical engineering was the precision. Um, you know, you can use formulas to characterize um, you know, activities in the physical world or building systems and things like that. Um, but what happened was I discovered kind of like as I got further up um, in, my, in my education, so when I started my PhD, I was working on optics, um, like the communication using light. Um, I found that this was all very imprecise and very analog, and there were a lot of sort of fudge factors that were preventing you from like really characterizing the systems you were building using math. And so when I took cryptography for the first time in 2005, I was just super excited about the ability to like represent the physical world and relationships and trust using math that was, you know, fully capturing everything that was going on in the situation. And for me, that was like the big driver to sort of drop everything that I was doing and, and stop really being an electrical engineer and start becoming a computer scientist and studying cryptography and all of that. So it's really the precision um, and the ability to, to characterize trust relationships in a mathematical way that really drew me into the field at the beginning. And then when you were also describing how you came to found Arwin, you kept saying we got into the space four or five years ago. So what did you, who were you referring to and what happened at that time? Yeah, so um, what happened is that, um, so I'm a computer science professor at Boston University. I've been there for, I think this is nine years now. Um, in 2013, I had a new PhD student whose name was Ethan Heilman, and um, he joined my lab, and I was working on internet routing security and cryptography at that time. Uh, and I was really excited about that stuff. And so I was, you know, at that point, like five or six years into this long research program on, on internet routing security and basically all these protocols that form the guts of the internet communication network. And so Ethan showed up and he was obsessed with Bitcoin. And at the time there was only Bitcoin. There was really nothing else. He just would not stop talking about Bitcoin. And um, <laughs> basically we figured out the only way to get like productive research out of this person was to do uh, Bitcoin research. And so we did. And it ended up being amazing. And my most cited research paper is actually with, with Ethan that we wrote in 2015, which is the first paper that we, um, we did on, in the blockchain space. Um, and what we did there was we were basically the first to consider um, how Bitcoin nodes actually communicate and find each other. 
um, because prior to our work, everyone sort of assumed that like any node that's participating in a blockchain knows what the blockchain is, so has the same data about what the blockchain is, and that was sort of an underlying assumption in um, all of the analysis of blockchain up to that point. And we had realized that um, like there's a communication layer here, there's a network here, what is this network? How can you attack it? And we did one of the first attacks on the actual communication layer of Bitcoin that resulted in changes in the, in the Bitcoin protocol um, in 2015. So that was me and Ethan. Um, and Ethan really pulled me into this space over the last, you know, like six years that I've been working with him, um, sort of culminating in us founding Arwen in 2017 and basically working on it together for the last couple of years. And so you started to describe kind of briefly how Arwen works, but let's go into it uh, in a more detailed fashion. Why, why don't you just walk me through what it looks like when someone trades using Arwen? Right. So... With Arwen, the idea is that you wouldn't deposit your coins into exchange custody. You would use your own custodian to custody your coins while you trade. So the way that this plays out is um, we use this concept called escrows. So if you're very deep into the blockchain space, you're probably familiar with Layer 2 protocols like the Lightning Network, and there's various other Layer 2 um, projects out there like Plasma and others that are built on Ethereum. So with Arwen, what we do is we have these escrows where if you're going to trade, let's say, Bitcoin into Bitcoin Cash, you're going to have escrows on the Bitcoin blockchain and escrows on the Bitcoin Cash blockchain. The idea is that every coin's blockchain acts as the agent of escrow for trading that coin. So if I'm trading Bitcoin, Bitcoin blockchain will be the agent of escrow. And so what you do is instead of taking your coins and depositing them in the exchange's wallet, what you do is you deposit them into an escrow on the blockchain. So Bitcoins go into a Bitcoin escrow on the Bitcoin blockchain, and then that escrow backs your trades with the exchange. So trades themselves are happening instantly in the sense, the same way that you would place a trade today, you know, for instance, through the API of an exchange, you would just place a trade through the API. That's exactly what Arwen does. You're placing trades um, through the API of the exchange, but what we have in front of that API is basically the Arwen protocol that translates your trades into a cryptographic um, atomic swap messages, but they happen instantly. So at the end of the day, what Arwin looks like is you take your coins, you put them in escrows, you do trades backed by those escrows, and then when you're finished trading, you would close your escrows and your coins would return to your wallet. So it's sort of functionally similar to trading today where you would deposit coins, trade on the exchange and withdraw coins, but the difference is that instead of depositing into the exchange, you're depositing into these escrows. And Arwin guarantees that even if the exchange gets hacked or goes offline, um, you'll still be able to close your escrows and claim all the coins that you've traded. So there's something that I don't know if I fully understand here. So I put my coins that I want to trade into an escrow. And then that es that smart contract, the, the escrow, talks to the exchange. So then at what point does the atomic swap happen? Because as far as I understand, um, that can just happen directly between two blockchains. So now I don't understand where the exchange comes in. Yeah. So um, the escrows are not the atomic swap. So the escrows are a smart contract on whatever blockchain it is that you're using. So for instance, Bitcoin, versus Ethereum. You might have two escrows, one on Bitcoin blockchain, one on Ethereum blockchain. And then you're doing atomic swaps that are backed by those two escrows. So um, there will be um, a message that adjusts the balance in your Bitcoin escrow and also a, a message that adjusts the balance in your Ethereum escrow. And the adjustment would be exactly the value you traded. So for instance, if you're selling one Bitcoin, your Bitcoin escrow would be minus one. And if you're buying you know, two ETH, then your Ethereum escrow would be plus two. And those 
those messages essentially are sent back and forth between you and the exchange, and they adjust the balance in your escrow. So now when you have those messages, you have the ability to close your escrow at any time and claim the actual coins that you've traded. This is the idea of a layer two protocol where you don't have to actually go to the blockchain every time you do something. You just create transactions that if you took them to the blockchain, they would do something for you. Right? So what we're doing is we do a trade. Um, we create these messages that could close the escrows for us with the balance after our trade. But we decide not to close the escrow. We decide to do another trade. Um, and then we get these new um, transactions that could close the escrow with the new balance of our trades, and we keep doing that until we actually decide to really close the escrow and take those messages and post them to the blockchain. So this okay, protocol I think where is, I'm getting uh, confused yeah. is for yeah. when you say, if I want to trade BTC for ETH, I'm not creating both escrows, am I? It's like I'm yeah. creating one and maybe if... Wait, I am. Okay. So, so I have to put Ether up into... Yeah, I have to put Bitcoin into one escrow and then I put Ether up into the other escrow? Yeah, okay, let me let me rewind a little bit that, that part. So here's what would happen. Um, if you were to trade with Arwen, let's say we're trading from Bitcoin to Ethereum. So the first step that you would do is you would take your Bitcoin and you would put them in an escrow where the agent of escrow is the Bitcoin blockchain, right? So that will collateralize your trades of Bitcoin. The second thing you need to do is you need to get an escrow um, of Ethereum that will actually collateralize the purchase of Ethereum that you're about to do. So the first step of Arwen is setting up the escrow that you funded, and then, which is the Bitcoin escrow, and setting up this additional escrow, which we call an exchange escrow, that's going to be funded by the exchange. So in, in this particular example, when we're doing Bitcoin to Ethereum trading, you would fund a Bitcoin escrow, and the exchange would fund an Ethereum escrow. Now, once you have those two escrows set up, you can do atomic swaps that are backed by those two escrows. Oh, now I get it. So what's happening is that the exchange is, is putting in Ethereum to collateralize your trades, to collateralize your purchase of ETH, and you are putting in Bitcoin to collateralize your sale of Bitcoin, and then you're doing a swap across those two escrows and across those two blockchains. Oh, wow. That's super fascinating. So something then that I want to understand here is, is there any central point of failure in this process? So each party is sort of um, protecting itself. So in the sense that the guarantee is that as long as the user's machine is not compromised or their custodian is not compromised, they are guaranteed that they can close their escrow with the correct balance, regardless of what's going on on the exchange side. Right? So let's say the exchange goes down, stops talking. You won't be able to do any more trades with that exchange, right? because it's just not there. It's not accepting any trades. But you will have a particular balance in your escrow. So for instance, you, know, you sold one Bitcoin and you bought two ETH. So let's say the exchange just disappears or lose access to its wallet or doesn't exit scam or something. You would be able to close your Bitcoin escrow and your Ethereum escrow with the correct balance after you trade. That's what Arwen guarantees. So in terms of a single point of failure, there is a point of failure in the sense that if the exchange goes down, you can't trade there anymore, but it's not going to cause you to lose your coins. And then there was another aspect of how this works that you described to me before where you talked about the so the Arwin protocol is what enables this to happen. But as far as I understand, there's also something that Arwin runs, which is the Arwin hub. So what role does that play? Right. So I just want to emphasize that Arwin um, provides the the sort of the, the same similar value proposition to a decentralized exchange. In a decentralized exchange, a lot of the goal is to have self-custody of your coins, not to trust a third party with custody of your coins. That's the same with Arwin. The difference about Arwin from most decentralized exchanges is that Arwin 
does not have its own separate order book and its own separate ecosystem like you might have, for instance, in ZeroX protocol or in um, EtherDelta, Arwen is going to be plugging into the order books of the exchange. So that's the big difference. Um, and because we plug into the order books of the exchange, the trades have, have to happen necessarily as quickly as trades would happen in a normal, you know, regular exchange that was custodial. So our trades are fast um, because they're actually just regular trades on the order book. So that's the big difference. You asked me about the Arwen Hub. So what the Arwen Hub is, is it's basically a cloud system that speaks Arwen on behalf of the exchange. So it translates Arwen messages into uh, messages that can be placed on the exchange's order book. So rather than having the exchange like implement an entire Arwen protocol themselves, which is not very realistic, um, you know, my company writes the um, writes the Arwen Hub, which um, will take Arwen protocol messages from traders and translate them just into regular um, API messages that will go into the order book of the exchange. And is there any chance that those messages could be hacked along the way? Um, if they were, then that would affect only the exchange, but not the users themselves. Oh, right. So the guarantee, of, uh, the guarantee of Arwen is that each party takes care of themselves. The traders are going to be secure even if the exchange is hacked, and the exchange is going to be secure even if the traders are hacked. Oh, interesting. Okay. And then is Arwin limited in the types of exchanges that it works with? Or I guess, is it only centralized exchanges that you work with? Yeah, it's currently focused on centralized exchanges. We haven't looked at integration with decentralized exchanges yet. The reason for that is because we're focused on getting into the places where there's the highest amount of liquidity, which is currently the centralized exchanges. All right. And then we started to draw the contrast with trading on a DEX, but can you uh, flesh that out even further? Like trading on Arwin versus trading on a DEX? Yeah, yeah. So there's one key difference, um, which is the the sort of the fact that we're plugging into the liquidity of a centralized exchange. If you're trading on Arwin, uh, you could be the only Arwin user on that exchange, um, and that's fine. You don't need to have your counterparty be another Arwin user. It can it's just basically a trade that's going on the order book and being filled the normal way that a trade would be filled on an order book. So that's really the key differentiator is that we don't uh, we're not as dependent as a DEX is on the growth of the like the network effects of that specific DEX because we just go into the exchange and use that the pricing from the and the liquidity from the exchange itself. So that's the key difference. Um, there are other sort of um, other important differences, um, which are um, the speed. So Arwin trades are not actually executed on the blockchain. And so that means a couple of things. It means that we're not subject to slow blockchain confirmation times. Any sort of confirmations that have to hit the blockchain are for opening escrows and closing escrows, but not for trading. So the trades can happen fast. That's the first thing. The second thing is that when you do a trade with Arwin, um, that trade is not visible to anyone except you and the exchange that you're placing the trade on. And so that saves you from a lot of issues that are um, affecting DEXs right now, which have to do with front running. So in a DEX, um, typical DEX is you execute your trade on the actual blockchain. So your trade will go to like an Ethereum smart contract and the Ethereum smart contract will be the one to actually execute the trade. So that means for your trade to actually happen, it needs to go through an Ethereum miner. And so that creates front running risks because if the Ethereum miner doesn't like your trade or wants to front run your trade, they have the power to do that before the trade has actually executed. And so we see a lot of interesting front running um, tricks that, that are happening today, like, um, 
even now on, on a lot of DEXs. We sort of sidestep all of this because there's no on-blockchain execution of individual trades, so no miners are really involved in um, the execution of the trades, so you lose all of these risks. So to sum up, really, it's the liquidity of the exchange's order book, it's the speed because we don't go to the blockchain, um, and it's the um, lack of front-running um, because we don't have to involve miners in actually executing trades. Yeah, I was going to bring up that paper that Phil Diane at Cornell wrote recently with some other academics about how arbitrage, arbitrage bots indexes are doing certain things like paying high transaction fees and taking advantage of network latency to front run mm -hmm. the ordinary yep. trade, the ordinary user trades on DEXs. So it sounds like with Arwen. Yeah, that's exactly what I was getting into there. Yeah. And is there any situation in the future where it would ever make sense to try to implement something like Arwin on a DEX or no? Is it only really for centralized exchanges? So Arwin on a DEX is tricky because the, the model that we've taken with Arwin is, um, well, I have to be careful about that, actually. Let me answer the like level one answer and then I'll do the level two answer. The, the, the level one answer is that Arwin on a DEX is a little tricky because Arwin swaps the movement of coins is from uh, the user's wallet to the exchange's wallet or to some sort of collateral party wallet. It's not, you know, if Alice is trading with counterparty Bob, where Alice is an Arwin user and Bob is not an Arwin user, Bob is just a regular custodial user of the exchange, um, there's really no direct movement of funds from Alice's wallet to Bob's wallet. It's more that there's a movement of funds from Alice's wallet to the exchange's wallet. And even though that sounds strange, that's exactly what happens today. Like if you trade at... Um, you know, pick your favorite exchange, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to move your coins into that exchange's wallet, and then you'll do some trades, and then you'll pull your uh, coins out of that exchange's wallet. So it's really um, trader to exchange wallet um, coin movement. And that's what we have in Arwin, right? Um, and so that looks kind of different from what you have in a DEX, where a DEX is the movement of coins is peer-to-peer. -peer. Um, so if Alice is trading with counterparty Bob, the actual swap will be from Alice's wallet to Bob's wallet. Um, the reason we took the Arwin approach was because we we really wanted to inter integrate directly into centralized exchanges and not have to um, build kind of our own ecosystem because we didn't think that was going to take off as quickly. And you can see that now with the liquidity indexes. Um, we think that that's, you know, coming from the, the fact that you really need, like, the growth inside the DEX and there's all these speed and, and front-running issues. So um, so that's, that's kind of why the fact that it's from the user's wallet to the exchange's wallet makes it really tricky to have it, like, fit directly into the DEX model. Um, that's level one answer. Level two answer is that there's a lot of interesting things that are coming out now, um, like Binance Dex and Huobi Dex. Um, these, and these are like, you know, very different from what someone has as a Dex when you look at something like Ether Delta. And the difference is that these Dexes are really uh, blockchains, separate blockchains. Um, that are supposed to allow you to trade like a large number of assets. So for instance, the, the Binance uh, chain, um, you can trade Bitcoin on the Binance chain. Right, and and that's kind of weird because Bitcoin is not issued by the Binance chain. Bitcoin is issued by the Binance, uh, the Bitcoin blockchain, right? So how do you actually trade Bitcoin on the Binance chain? Um, and the way you do that is through uh, a peg. So uh, Binance chain currently uses this thing called BTCB, which is basically um, Bitcoin dot B pegged to real Bitcoin. It's very similar to the way that Tether is pegged to US dollars. And so, you know, when you trade Tether, you're not trading U.S. dollars, but you're trading an asset that's pegged to U.S. dollars. BTCB is similarly an asset that's pegged to Bitcoin. So to make a long story short, that idea of like going from um, uh, the asset that's pegged, BTCB, to the actual real Bitcoin 
um, or going, you know, from real Bitcoin into an asset that's issued on the Binance blockchain, that's kind of a place where Arwin can, can come in and facilitate some of that uh, swapping and some of that security. The idea is that Arwin is designed to swap coins from their native blockchain. Um, and so rather than having to kind of, um, you know, deposit your Bitcoin at a custodian and, and withdraw B BTCB, um, you could use Arwin to swap directly from the Bitcoin into whatever the, the asset that's natively issued on the Binance blockchain would be. So that's kind of one way that we could we could fit into a DEX, but it's not really um, kind of plugging into EtherDelta the way you would you would think about it sort of at first glance. Oh, super interesting. Yeah, so I guess it could uh, be used in that fashion that is actually really fascinating. Um, and then one other thing I wanted to ask you about was when you kind of talked about, you know, why uh, it is that you're more focused now on centralized exchanges and how you get a certain level of speed. Does that mean that high frequency traders could also use Arwin? So we are paddling in that direction right now. So to have high frequency traders use Arwin, we need basically bi-directional uh, escrows that can you can sell and buy on the same escrow. So if I put in Bitcoin in, in an escrow, uh, right now you can sell the Bitcoin out of that escrow, but you can't buy it back with the current like uh, product that we've launched as of today. But um, you know, if you read our white paper and on our roadmap is to support both buy and sell, and so one could use that to very quickly, you know, like buy your Bitcoin, sell your Bitcoin, buy your Bitcoin, sell your Bitcoin, which is what I think high frequency traders are really looking for. Um, we're still doing a, a bunch of research on like what the high frequency trading market would look like in the crypto world. Um, what I'm hearing is that there's starting to be interest in building HFT, you know, data centers and, and using these strategies, but I'm, I'm not hearing that the demand is that high for like HFT at this, at this specific moment. So we're sort of, that's a little bit further on our roadmap, but we have the capability of doing that. And if you look at our white paper, like with the protocols for doing that are all laid out already in there. And earlier when you were talking about why it is that you, uh, why Arwen works with centralized exchanges, I think something that's interesting is that you went in that direction while at the same time in the industry, it sort of feels like everybody's working on decentralized exchanges. Mm -hmm. So do you feel that somehow Arwen's going against the tide in the industry? And, you know, why do you think that is? And how do you kind of plan to navigate that? I think we definitely went against the tide and we did it very inad inadvertently um, because, you know, in 2017, when we started thinking about what kind of company we wanted to build. Um, we were never of this opinion that decentralization is the key value proposition of blockchains. We were of the opinion that trust and trustlessness and managing trust was the key value proposition of blockchains. So let me explain what that means. One thing that has been sort of this uh, constant current through my, my, my career as a, as a security researcher and engineer is that everywhere in the internet you have these things called trusted third parties. Um, for instance, if you want to use um, HTTPS to securely access a website, at the end of the day, the security of that entire ecosystem comes down to a few centralized parties, which are called certificate authorities. And these guys are, you know, they get hacked and bad things happen. And there's all sorts of attacks that you can do because of this, like, you know, trusted centralized authority. And it's sort of like at the root of a lot of internet systems, like, um, you know, web encryption or um, DNS, the domain name system, you find this stuff everywhere. And so for us, like blockchain was this amazing thing that is a, a, an entity that you can trust, but it's not a single entity. It's not a single trusted third party. The blockchain itself provides a root of trust that you can do cryptography with, but it's not a single party that can get hacked. So it's very hard to sort of roll back blockchains um, 
that's the whole point. But there's not just like a single place that you can go and attack and like kind of skew the whole blockchain. And that's, that's really fascinating. So when we, um, that's, my, that's always been my understanding of what blockchains are and what they're for. And so when we started this, we said, okay, look, there's a whole bunch of things called centralized exchanges. They're getting attacked. They're getting hacked. Money's getting stolen. How can we continue to trade on these things but not have to trust them? And then we said, okay, let's continue trading on them but just use the blockchain as a root of trust. And that's where Arwen came from. The idea is you want to trade on centralized exchanges. Everybody wants to trade on centralized exchanges. Look at all this volume, right, 2017. Look at all this volume. How do we trade on them um, without having to trust them? And that's where the whole thing started. So when the, when the, when the whole DEX, you know, um, movement took off, we were just going in a completely different direction saying like everybody wants to use centralized exchanges. Why don't we just figure out a way for them to use them without having to trust them? And from the exchanges perspective, how does working with Arwin benefit them? And, you know, what, what do you have to do to convince them to work with you? Like, I don't know how much work it takes to integrate Arwin. So working with an exchange is like your general enterprise SaaS, you know, sales cycle. So you have to convince the basically the executive at this exchange that this is a good idea. So that's, you know, that takes some time. Um, in terms of why they would do it, I think that there are a couple of reasons. There are a lot of actual leadership at exchanges that really believes in the promise of blockchain and the idea that uh, blockchain provides sort of trustless all this ability to do things trustlessly, that things are decentralized. And, and we have found actual leadership at, at a number of exchanges that, that this is like something that they truly believe. Um, and so they're bothered by the fact that they're like, therefore acting as this custodian, basically acting like a traditional bank for everyone's crypto. Like they just feel like that's against the ethos of the space. So that's like one thing that you sometimes find and that helps us get to a deal faster. The other thing is that, you know, providing these types of features um, puts them basically in a leadership position in the market. So we launched on KuCoin um, four months, four weeks ago, um, and there was a bunch of press about, you know, these are, this is a leading, um, this is like a, a bold move that they're leading this, this space and they're kind of doing things that, that other exchanges have, haven't thought of doing. So at the moment, um, what Arwin is is really a differentiator to draw traders to an exchange um, that would allow them to transact on an exchange in a way that they can't really do in many other exchanges. And so that's really the main value proposition that we're offering. Um, these exchanges, like being able to, to provide the service to their users and, 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 um, and kind of lead the industry in that direction. The other piece um, that I think is really important is that if you look at what's been going on in the crypto space in 2018, um, you know, we can sit here and just start naming number of startups that are trying to solve the custody problem. So let me just start, you know, Casa, Ledger, Treasure, uh, BitGo, Anchorage, like, let's just keep going, Zappo. There's tons <laughs> of them, right? And, and they're all super interesting, different, coin kite. Everyone's doing something different, and they're all really interesting. But at the end of the day, like, you have your coins in this custodian. As soon as you go to trade, they're not in your custodian anymore. And so, you know, what is driving me personally to, to kind of like push this into the market is that there are going to be users, they're going to be using these custodians, they're going to be invested in their custodian, and they're going to say, this is my secure custodian. I don't want to take my coins off my custodian, but I still want to do things with them. And protocols like Arwen allow them to do that. And so I think that as the custodians gain market traction, there's going to be more market traction for protocols like ours. Um, and, and not having to like really change what they already do, because people are used to trading on centralized exchanges, but they just want to get to those exchanges in a way that keeps their coins protected by their custodians. Great. And actually, just that last piece about what it takes to integrate with Arwen, is it just a kind of writing some code to integrate or to, uh, to interact with the smart contracts with the escrow smart contracts? No, no, no. So um, we take care of all of that. So really, the, the integration has to do with um, us um, 
coming into the exchange, looking at their API endpoints for trading and um, terminating against those API endpoints. So we need certain endpoints. So for instance, um, some exchanges have the ability to programmatically withdraw coins from the exchange, right? There's like a withdraw endpoint in the API. So if that's present, we can use that to do an Arwin integration. If that's not present, then we may need that to be exposed. So that's sometimes where the latency comes in. Like if you look at the big exchanges like Binance and um, I think Poloniex, Bitstamp, they all support this type of um, programmatic withdrawal from the um, from the from accounts. Um, we need that, but some of the smaller ones may not have that, so we we have to wait for that to, to be added. And so the, that that's kind of the the integration. It's they don't have to do anything Arwin specific. It's just that we need certain like basic functionalities from the API that some of them have and some of them don't have. All right. So we're going to talk more about the custody uh, stuff that you mentioned and also more about smart contracts after the break. But first, a quick word from our fabulous sponsors. On May 27th, I will be hosting a conversation about the future of finance and human rights at the Oslo Freedom Forum in Norway. As the world continues to move toward a cashless society, paper currency is disappearing. Companies like Facebook, Apple, and Tencent are becoming increasingly influential in the digital payment space. We'll discuss how individuals and companies can preserve and protect financial freedoms in the digital age. I'll be joined by Bitcoin author and educator Jimmy Song, CASA Chief Technology Officer Elena Vranova, Coin Center founder Jerry Brito, and Bitfury Group Vice Chairman George Kikvadze. To register to attend, you can visit oslofreedomforum.com today. Use the discount code UNCHAINED25 to get 25% off your ticket price. Did you know that if money laundering were an economy, its GDP would be the size of Canada's? Large volumes of tainted crypto assets move through financial networks, often below the radar of banks. Cybercriminals use unregulated crypto exchanges to avoid detection. No wonder governments around the world are rolling out tough, new anti-money laundering laws for cryptocurrencies. Complying with those laws isn't easy. Banks and exchanges need the best cryptocurrency intelligence available to avoid penalties. Now you can use the same powerful AML and compliance monitoring tools used by regulators. CypherTrace is securing the crypto economy. To learn more, visit cyphertrace.com slash unchained. Back to my conversation with Sharon Goldberg of Arwen. So when you were mentioning custody earlier, do you have to sign on specific custody solutions or can people use any other custody solutions with Arwen? Yeah, so currently you can use Arwen with any custody solution that you have. And again, this is a two-part answer to your question. So Right now, what we do with Arwin is that there's a piece of code called the Arwin daemon that um, speaks Arwin on the trader's behalf. And th what the Arwin daemon really has inside it is keys that are associated with the Arwin escrows. So when you take your coins and you put them in an Arwin escrow, there are keys associated with that escrow that allow you to move coins around and do trades. So the ideal integration from a security perspective for us would be to have the keys associated with the escrow um, actually housed inside your custodian. Right? So for instance, if you're trading with a ledger, then those keys would be inside the ledger. And so that type of integration requires, you know, a bunch of work on our side and on the custodian side to actually execute upon. Um, and that, you know, we're interested in doing some of that with, with, with like a variety of custodians. But at the moment, um, we have sort of um, a different way of doing it, which is that the keys associated with a particular escrow would live on the user's local machine. And so um, those coins are actually never going into the custody of any third party. They're being, con uh, sorry, the coins in the escrows 
are actually being moved around by the Arwen daemon, which is a, an executable that the user would locally would locally download. So that means that you can basically use any uh, custodian you want to transfer coins into the Arwen escrows. The, the daemon will um, move the coins around in the escrows, and then when you close your Arwen escrows, those will go back into your custodian directly. So at the moment, we can support any any custodian, but as we go into sort of like higher levels of security, we'd have more deep integrations with specific custodians, and that's kind of what we're working on right now. And when you say any kind of custodian, do you also include things like Zoppo and yeah. Coinbase custody, stuff like that? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because today what, what, what you need to do and actually to move a coin into an Arwen escrow is that the Arwen uh, daemon will tell you an address. So for Bitcoin, you'll be given an address that is the hash of the Arwen escrow smart contract. So you have the Arwen escrow smart contract and you hash it. That gives you an address. And that's an address like any other address. And so what you would do is you would fund that address and that locks your coins in escrow. The oh, address okay. itself is the hash of a smart contract, and that smart contract is associated with escrow keys that allow you to adjust the balance in the escrow. And so then if Arwen were widely adopted, the general vision would sort of be like, people could, if they want to, outsource their custody and also transact with a centralized exchange, which would enable them to, number one, not to have to worry about their about managing their own private keys necessarily, um, and then also to not worry about their funds on any exchange being hacked. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, that's right. And so how does Arwen make money? Um, so we work with the centralized exchanges and we um, share part of the revenue with them that comes through the trades that come on Arwen. Like from each transaction? Uh, that depends on the particular exchange, but it could be done per, per transaction. It can be done sort of as a fee at the start of the year. There's different there's different arrangements that we've considered with different players, but it has to do with, basically with um, you know the traffic that comes in through through the Arwen um, through the Arwen platform to the exchange. And what coins do you support, and how do you decide which ones to support? Yeah, so currently we have three coins because we are um, we're still in beta and we're moving towards like the full set of features that we plan to support by the end of the year. But right now we have Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, and Litecoin. So we're probably the only uh, protocol right now that can support swaps from Bitcoin into Bitcoin Cash, actually. And so those are the three that we have right now. And the team is currently working on Ethereum and ERC-20. And so when we have that part, we're going to have the ability to basically swap from all the ERC-20 tokens plus the stable coins um, into Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, and Litecoin. So that's where we're starting from. We started there because we, we were looking for the highest volume coins at the moment, um, and that was always Bitcoin. Um, and so we started there first. The other reason to start with Bitcoin is because Bitcoin is actually harder to write protocols for. And so we started with basically the most difficult part of the problem first. Um, and when we have solved that problem, we can basically migrate that onto other coins that are easier to write smart contracts and protocols for. And that's, for example, Ethereum. And so that's why we did Ethereum second. I mean, if you, sh if you can actually nail down all the protocol and, uh, specificities in Bitcoin, it's a lot easier to, to port that over to Ethereum, which is completely different and a lot easier to program than Bitcoin. And when you were talking, and then earlier I asked you, so how do you decide which coins to support? Yeah, so we looked at the highest volume coins, which were... Oh, um, no, but I mean, know, like going are, forward, how will you Oh, going decide? forward, yeah. Sorry. Um, going forward, I think we're, you know, 
I'm very interested in a lot of these different new coins that are coming out. Like we have Cosmos and we have Binance Chain and we have Zcash. There's just a, a, a huge number of super interesting new blockchains that are out there. I think right now we, we have our hands full with uh, the Ethereum and ERC-20 leg. And I think that like at the end of 2019, we're going to have an interesting view on like what are the next set of really key blockchains. And I think at that point, we're going to look at, you know, what are those blockchains? What type of scripting functionality do they have? And, and pick on the basis of both, you know, like the popularity and the importance and the success of the coin and also like the, what, what we can actually do with it in terms of scripting and protocol design. Okay, but generally, you sort of envision that eventually Arwen will support as many coins as possible? That's right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we just have to pick and choose in terms of um, the size of our team and what we can execute on. But yeah, our, our, our goal is really to have coins that are not designed to interoperate with each other, to allow those to interoperate. So we're looking at the, the, the type of coins that aren't supposed to really be able to, to do cross-blockchain um, protocols and, and focusing on actually executing this, the cross-blockchain protocols for coins that aren't supposed to be able to communicate. So like the classic right now example of that is, you know, Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash, when they fork, you know, protocols that are designed for Bitcoin typically cannot work with Bitcoin Cash. But we on purpose took the point of view that we need to be able to support something like Bitcoin Cash, even though they're not really designed to support each other because people are actually trading, you know, these pairs in practice. And that's, you know, that that's where the, the difficult problem is. And that's the one we're solving. So just a minute ago, you said that Ethereum is easier to program on. Um, but I know from our pre-interview that you personally actually find it the other way around, that Bitcoin's easier to program on. So can you talk a little bit about what it's like working with smart contracts in Bitcoin versus Ethereum and you know what the differences are and, and you know why maybe your point of view is a little bit different from others? Yeah, so the definition of the word easier, like easier is, can be <laughs> interpreted in so many different ways. So I have to be like precise about the meaning of easier. Um, so the way I was using easier two minutes ago was this, you know, Ethereum smart contracts can support a, a massive amount of functionality. Uh, they are Turing complete. It was just something that everyone says. But, you know, something that's like more meaningful, apart from the Turing completeness of Ethereum smart contracts, is like you can write all sorts of code in Ethereum. You're not, you're not super restricted into what actual, you know, um, functions you can execute in Ethereum. Uh, with Bitcoin, you can like basically do three things. You can uh, sign transactions, not messages. You can't sign whatever message you want. You can only sign transactions and you can uh, compute hashes and check that the hash matches, uh, like the pre-image of the hash matches the hash value. So those are the two things you can basically do in Bitcoin. So given that you can only do two things in Bitcoin, it's, it's not that easy to come up with protocols that, that are, have, you know, rich functionality, given that you can really only do two things in this, in the scripting language. And so that's why I say it's, you know, harder to write, um, protocols in, in Bitcoin than it is to write protocols in Ethereum, because in Ethereum, you can put a lot of the complexity of the protocol into the actual smart contract, because the scripting language supports doing all sorts of things that are not possible to do on Bitcoin. So that's one definition of easier. Okay, so now let's go to the next definition, which is when you're actually building a smart contract, right? So now you've figured out your protocol. Um, what is a protocol? Protocol is uh, what your smart contract is plus what messages you send back and forth. That's the de definition of a protocol. So in Bitcoin, your smart contract is really simple, right? Because you can barely do anything with this scripting language. Um, but the messages you send back and forth may be more complicated, right? Um, in Ethereum, your smart contract is much more complicated, but the messages you send back and forth may be simpler. So 
what's easier is like when you're writing the Bitcoin smart contract, it's really easy because it's just a little dumb thing that can do very few things. And actually programming that and making sure it doesn't have any bugs is not that hard, right? Because it just doesn't really do much. So there's very few places where you can go wrong. For instance, the Arwen escrow smart contract has 16 uh, opcodes in it. Uh, Bitcoin script is like assembly language, and we only have 16 opcodes in our um, escrow smart contract. If you try to take the exact same smart contract in, from Bitcoin and try to port it into Ethereum, you end up with this complex, you know, much more complex contract that has many more lines of code, many more function calls, many more, um, you know, things that are that are being done just to execute the exact same functionality. And that comes because the Ethereum scripting language is more uh, rich than the Bitcoin one. So when I say it's easier to write Bitcoin smart contracts, it is because they're so simple. Once you figure out that like this smart contract lets you actually do something, then writing it is easy. Um, the hard part with Bitcoin is figuring out like how you can actually do anything with this very crippled scripting language that's available to you in Bitcoin. So that's a very long answer to to my um, to the question, and the reason that I find like Ethereum more difficult is because actually writing the smart contract itself, once you've decided what it needs to do, is trickier because there's more instructions and there's all sorts of strange things that can happen in Ethereum um, because of way, the way the Ethereum virtual machine works. That is very different from like just writing regular like Java code or C sharp code that programmers are used to. And so I actually don't know what an opcode is. So when you said there are only 16 of those in Bitcoin, is that like lines of code? It's actually an instruction. So it might say, it might be like, um, if some, like an if could be an opcode or um, uh, sign something could be an opcode or check the hash could be an opcode, check the time could be an opcode. Uh, those, are, those are examples of opcodes. So there's just a very small number of, of instructions that you can do. Uh, it's not a function call, but it's like a, an instruction, almost like a machine instruction. I don't know if that if that clarifies. It's a very engineer answer, but it's just that there's a few like commands you can use in Bitcoin, and each opcode is like one of those commands. And then in Ethereum, for the same functionality, how many lines is that? You said it was a lot more. Yeah, it's a lot more. Um, we're actually, st I, I don't want to tell you the number because we're still working on the exact details of the smart contract right now, but um, <laughs> the 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 um, the difference is that you don't have specific instructions, but you have, you know, like function calls. You have like a rich, you know, programming language. You're not writing code in, in like machine code, like assembly language, like you are in Bitcoin. That's the real difference. It's like if you think about normal programming languages, when you're programming your, um, your CPU and your computer, you're using a language called assembly language, which is very simple, like move something here, um, you know, multiply something, hash something. Um, that's what you would do when you're programming like a CPU. And then when you're like a normal developer would be writing like JavaScript code, that's many, many layers above what you would be doing when you're programming a CPU with assembly language. So the difference is when you're programming Bitcoin, you're really doing like assembly language programming, uh, like one layer above the CPU essentially. And when you're doing um, Ethereum programming, you, you're using a much a richer programming language that has a lot more functionality, but also a lot more complexity. All right. Super interesting. Um, so let's move on to some thought experiments. Um, you did mention before Mt. Gox and Binance and just in general, you know, obviously there's this whole history of exchanges being hacked in crypto. And here it is that you uh, are working on a project that, you know, could potentially, I think, prevent uh, situations like that. So what do you think would have happened if users had been using Arwen in uh, the Mt. Gox situation? So if an exchange is hacked, basically what happens is the exchange would be di disabling the ability to deposit and withdraw coins from that exchange. And so in Arwen, what that looks like is that the exchange would refuse to cooperate in closing any escrows that you have with that exchange. 
So remember in R1, what you do is you take your coins, deposit them in an escrow, do a bunch of trades, and when you're finished, you close the escrow and the coins return back to your wallet and can be used for other purposes. So if something bad happens to the exchange, when you go to close your escrow, the exchange will basically not respond in the way that you expect or just refuse to respond at all. So you'd see that something's wrong, that, that this escrow is not closing because the exchange is not cooperating with you to close this escrow. Um, at this point, what Arwen would do is go into a coin recovery procedure. And what that is is that the Arwen daemon, the, 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 the piece of software that speaks Arwen on your behalf, will detect that the exchange is not properly responding to your request to close an escrow. And so what it will do is it will say to you, you know, this escrow is frozen, the exchange is not responding. Um, you'll be able to recover your coins and get the coins out of this escrow on your own without the assistance of the exchange um, after a particular time. And so Arwen escrows are associated with an expiry time. So when you set up an escrow, you might say, you know, this escrow is for three days. Um, what that expiry time does is that when it's over, it allows you to unilaterally close the escrow without the exchange's participation. So even if they're hacked or they're behaving badly or something else has gone wrong on the exchange, you can still on your own basically withdraw the coins from the escrow and use them from something else, um, even if the exchange is not there. So the bottom line is if the exchange is hacked, um, you just be um, having your coins frozen in escrow for some period of time, at which point you'll be able to recover them according to the balance of the trades that you've done up to that point. So that sounds like it would apply really to any of kind of these high profile situations on exchanges like Mt. Gox, Quadriga, Binance. Is that true that it would apply to all those? That's right. Yeah. So essentially what happens is if something goes wrong on the exchange and they stop processing withdrawals, which is essentially what you see in all these cases, right? For instance, Quadriga, um, you know, the founder disappeared and, um, you know, they lost access to their wallets. So if they don't have access to their wallets, they can't process withdrawals, right? Um, another example would be like if an exchange is hacked, um, they can't process withdrawals because there's no longer coins in their wallet to support the withdrawals. So it all comes down to just basically withdrawals not happening. So, um, so what Arwen looks like in all those cases is, you know, the exchange is not participating in closing this escrow, so we're going to close it on our own. Yeah, and just to clarify, the Quadriga owner died, apparently, but uh, yes, there, there is some suspicion about whether or not that was true. Um, but then I actually also wanted to ask, so I know we don't have all the details about Binance just yet, and for listeners, um, we're actually recording very shortly after the Binance hack was announced. So um, potentially between the time we've re recorded this and the time we're releasing it, there could be more details that are um, revealed. But Sharon, for you, knowing what we know so far, um, is there any, because like as far as I understand from uh, Binance's announcement, it looks like individual user accounts were compromised. So I, I don't know if you, if, if an exchange were using Arwen and if like, you know, uh, I, I don't know how that would affect uh, the ability to do something like that. Right. So with the Binance hack, right, what we know, and we're only like a couple days from the hack, so I'm sure more details will emerge in the coming days. What we know about this was that um, according to the information that's out there is that uh, several user accounts were compromised and it sounds like um, those accounts were sort of compromised at whatever rate they were compromised, so slowly accumulating compromised accounts. And then at one point, the attacker sort of took all those accounts, and it sounds like it told them all to withdraw at the same time and to withdraw coins to a particular place, which is controlled by the attacker, and um, or places that are controlled by the attacker. And so all those accounts kind of just in one transaction um, withdrawed 
uh, all those accounts requested a withdrawal kind of at the same time, and that withdrawal was processed at the same transaction um, all in one shot. And then we had 7,000 uh, Bitcoins from the Binance Hot Wallet just uh, be moved into the attacker's control. So that's what it, it sounds like. So individual uh, accounts probably were compromised at some very slow rate, and then the attacker like waited until the moment where he actually did the with or he or she did the, the withdrawal and, um, and processed at the same time. So that's, you know, that's a pretty aggressive and precise um, attack. And that's what we know right now. But, you know, I'm sure more details will emerge in the future. So the effect of this was that essentially the hot wallet was emptied and there were no more coin in the hot wallet. So uh, consider another user that wasn't compromised um, that's just coming in and wants to withdraw their Bitcoin from Binance. Well, there's no more Bitcoin in the hot wallet anymore. So you can't really do withdrawals um, unless they take them out of the cold wallet, which, of course, they weren't going to do at the moment that they discovered that something went wrong, right? So the exchange is not going to, like, you know, be like, okay, now let's pull out our cold wallet and expose that and, and risk that being hacked. So at that point, you know, withdrawals are frozen because that's the only, like, natural thing to do at that point. So there's nothing, you know, strange about that. And, and at the end of the day, you know, you know, Alice, who has nothing to do with any of this, can't withdraw her Bitcoin, even though they're her Bitcoin, right? Um, so the difference with Arwen would be we'd be back into this case where, like, the user wants to, to close an escrow. Um, she never actually gave her Bitcoin to the custody of, of Binance. So even if Binance's hot wallet was emptied, she still has whatever her escrows are. Those are still locked on the blockchain. Even if Binance is like, I'm going offline, I'm not going to talk to anyone for a week while I figure out what happened here, um, she could unilaterally close those escrows with without the participation of the exchange. So really the whole technical contribution and all the, all the innovation in Arwen is really just dealing with the case where the uh, other side of the escrow, you know, so I'm, I'm escrowing with Binance, um, just disappears and doesn't want to participate anymore. And, and so I have to be able to recover on my own without the ex- exchange's participation. Right. But actually, so my question was ever so slightly different, which is that um, it sounds to me like an attacker wouldn't be able to perpetrate this type of hack because, uh, sorry, if, you know, all, let's say all the users were, were using Arwen, because essentially what would just happen is that then individual users might lose their coins, but the exchange, I mean, granted, then it gets a little weird because then we're sort of presuming, anyway, you, I think you see where I'm going, because <laughs> then it's sort of like the exchange doesn't have any coins, but essentially um, it would so if an individual user gets compromised, it kind of like localizes the damage to that individual user rather than the exchange suffering. Is that right. sort of right? Okay. Yeah. So I mean, there's two there's two answers. One is that the user really doesn't care what happens at the exchange. So even if the exchange is like out to get her the entire time she's trading on that exchange, she doesn't care because the exchange's job is to put up escrows um, properly. You know, and, and when you're setting up the escrows, like if the exchange is not doing that properly, you won't set up escrows. And so those coins never go anywhere and you're never interacting with this exchange. Once you set up the escrows, even if the exchange is attacking you, it doesn't matter because you always know you're going to get the coins you expect. So that's really the first piece, right? Um, the second piece is that when you have self-custody, you kind of make it harder to um, to attack because the coins are housed, you know, in, in a distributed way. Um, and so that's really like the value proposition of a lot of these self-custody solutions is that you have to really go after the custodian in order to attack the user. And that's um, harder to do because it's like more places that you have to attack. All right. So let's talk about um, kind of where you're going. So you guys only recently launched in beta. And as far as I understand, there's like pretty um, restrictive limits uh, on the trading uh, so, you know, I, I, probably because you are in beta. Uh, can, first of all, can you actually state what those limits are right now? 
Yeah, it's about $100 right now for the next little while, but we're going to be raising it soon. And so then going on to the future, um, it sounds like right now you're working on adding Ethereum and ERC-20 tokens. Um, but what are some other futures, futures, features you'd like to add on Arwin in the future? Um, I kind of wondered if something like margin trading would work on Arwin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I, I can say this right now, but I, I don't want to like commit to anything I'm saying because we're still evaluating specifically what's next. Um, there's a lot of different things that we like know how to do and, and, and are interested in doing. So one of them is a the high frequency um, uh, trading support that you mentioned, which we think is really exciting. But, um, you know, we're looking at what exactly the demand is for that particular feature right now. There's also, you know, the notion of options. So, uh, you know, talking to traders, there's a lot of interest in having options that are not fully collateralized. So finding a way to do that could be really interesting. It's not something that we've started, but um, started building, but it's something that we've talked about and thought about. Other pieces are, you know, um, providing, uh, you know, fast movement of coins between exchanges. So, you know, you're on one exchange and now you can um, really quickly move your coins to different exchanges in order to exploit whatever price opportunity you have at different exchanges. So, you know, all of this I'm just kind of throwing out in the air because we haven't committed to exactly which one of these steps is next, potentially integrating with, with like banks and providing fiat support as well from through atomic swaps is another thing we're interested. In. So um, there's a lot of different opportunities that we're looking at right now. And, you know, we'll have like more details on exactly what that is in like the coming months. But right now our, our real focus is just like providing this um, support for Ethereum um, and, and basically reducing some of the friction in, in using Arwen. And sorry, just so I understand what you meant when you said that you would be interested in integrating with banks uh, for doing atomic swaps with fiat. Do you mean with like stable coins that are pegged to fiat or something like that? No, so stable coins are going to come through Ethereum. So that that's not that that's already on the roadmap, right? So when we have the ERC twenty, we will have stable coins, and then that's that's done basically. No, um, there, there's also a question of like real fiat through real banks, and how can you work with the banks to actually have them um, support? Um, you know, if there's movement of fiat in the bank, how can you actually reflect that movement of fiat on the blockchain? Um, you know, so if you move, let's say, a hundred dollars in the in the bank, then maybe you move like part of the Bitcoin on the blockchain at the same time. So some of those ideas or things that we're thinking about too. Okay. Okay. So I feel like I'm a little bit confused. So it's, it's like for a bank to use Arwin for their internal ledger? No, no. So, um, so let me back up. So people are very interested in crypto to fiat trading, right? So they want to trade dollars for Bitcoins. That's perhaps the most popular market. I mean, you have in Korea, you have dollars, uh, Bitcoin for, for one and, and things like that. So these, these are very popular markets. And um, this concept of atomic swaps, which is something that's very particular to um, cryptocurrency, can, can be extended. So when you do an atomic swap, um, you typically uh, have you know, two cryptocurrencies and you're swapping from one to the other. So again, an atomic swap means Alice has item A, Bob has item B. So either um, Alice gets B and Bob gets A, or Alice keeps A and Bob keeps B. So it can't be the case that Bob gets both A and B or Alice gets both A and B. That cannot happen. That's what an atomic swap is. Um, and you can do that on the blockchain without trusting anyone because that's the whole point of having a blockchain. It's a way of you know, having mutually untrusted parties agree on some form of truth. And so you can use that to build these protocols. So that's like an atomic swap um, when people in the blockchain space say that. That's what they mean. Um, but you can also extend that concept, right? So if you're actually moving fiat like real money, um, you know, paper money or money inside a bank, 
you know, there's no blockchain there. So it's, it's hard to kind of use the blockchain as a root of trust. But when people move fiat around, they use banks, right? When you're moving fiat back and forth, you might be using a bank to, to facilitate this transfer. So if you're transferring, you know, uh, fiat in the bank world, maybe you can reflect the movement of fiat in the bank world actually for the movement of coin on the blockchain, right? So you don't really have to trust anyone to move the, the coin, although you may have to trust the bank to move the fiat. And so tra- tying those two pieces together is something that we think is pretty interesting. Hmm. There's something about this. It sort of reminds me of like colored coins or something. But anyway, okay, well, it sounds very interesting. And I guess, you know, we'll sort of see if that's the direction you go in. Um, all right. Well, it's been so great having you on Unchained. Where can people learn more about you and Arwen? Um, so we have our website, uh, arwin.io. Um, if you want to try Arwin right now, um, you can go to uh, kucoin.com, which is the first exchange that we've launched with, which is one of the top exchanges in Asia, um, and just uh, click on trade from your wallet and you'll be able to use Arwin to trade directly on uh, Kucoin. Okay. Actually, there was one piece though that I think I saw, which is um, this is restricted to non-US residents. That's true. Okay. Yes, that's yeah. true. Um, <laughs> so just <laughs> if you want to talk a little bit about the whole regulatory yeah, can, actually, yeah. space. Yeah, can you? Let's, let's do that. Yeah. Um, okay. So, you know, we've been in this business for a year and a half and we've been talking to a whole bunch of exchanges and um, we discovered a bunch of things. So the first thing we discovered is that in Asia, crypto to crypto trading is a really big thing. It's a much bigger thing than it is here um, in the U.S. So that's really interesting. Um, Second is that um, in Asia, sort of the regulatory situation looks very different than it does here. So let's take the example of Japan, for instance. In Japan, you have the um, Financial Service Agency of Japan, the FSA, that regulates all crypto trading and transactions and payments and so on. So there's this one body called the FSA. They regulate everything. They're a very strong regulator and they're very tough um, and they're very involved, but there's just one of them and you know who they are. And so if the FSA licenses you, you're done. And so, you know, that's sort of like the picture in Asia. Either the regulators are very friendly and they're just like, you know, try what you're doing and we'll regulate you later after we figure out what it is that you're doing here. Or it'll be, um, you know, we're the FSA, we're very tough, but, you know, you just know that it's us and um, you can work with us and that's the end of it. So that's kind of the picture in Asia. And so what happened for us is because what we're doing is so new, it's hard for the regulators to really know what we're doing because it's new. Um, And so that makes it a little bit harder to kind of like launch um, with a U.S. exchange or with U.S. users because we have to kind of make an argument based on laws that are very old um, that involve multiple regulators. Like you have the SEC, the CFTC, you have the states, you have the FinCEN, you have just a large number of of different regulations that apply to cryptocurrency. You have to figure out how your new protocol fits into all of these different rules and what that means for um, taking U.S. users. So that's really tricky when you're a startup. And so um, what we've done is essentially like just worked outside of the U.S. because the regulatory landscape here, people say that it's unclear. Um, I think a more correct term is that it's complex and that there's a lot of regulations that you have to comply with and not complying with them results in very bad things. So kind of sidestepping all of that is what we've chosen to do at this point because um, we're really, you know, kind of breaking new ground from a technology perspective and understanding how that fits in with the regulations, um, you know, is something that we're working on, but it takes time. So at that, at this point, right, we've launched with an exchange that um, is abroad um, and doesn't really take users that are KYC from the U.S. And so, so as, as a result, you know, Arwen is, is not available to U.S. users right now. 
Um, I think broadly speaking, um, I personally would like to see less of this happening because I'm sure that you've um, encountered a lot of new projects that are coming from teams here that are actually launching outside of the U.S., and it really comes from this. When you're doing some of the really innovative things that are coming out of this country, um, understanding how the regulations apply to those things is really hard and expensive and involves lots of lawyers. And it's not just one set of rules, but it's like N of them. And that's what you see. You see, you know, you see launches outside of the U.S. That said, you know, we, we are working towards getting launches in the U.S., but it's like a, a longer and slower process that involves, you know, figuring out exactly how we fit into many more regulatory frameworks that are old and not really designed for this space. Yeah, I'm so glad that this came up at the end in a very roundabout way, because um, I did ask SEC Commissioner Hester Peirce about this when I interviewed her. And um, I think she seemed to say that she you know, was kind of sympathetic or, or did understand that this was something or, or that actually that she was just concerned about what you said, that kind of innovation was happening here, but people were uh, bringing their innovation elsewhere for that very reason. And um, she did say she listens to the show. So perhaps she'll hear this or I think other people at that's easy listen to the show as well. So maybe they'll hear. Um, but yeah, I, I do find it is not it's a pretty widespread sentiment, actually, amongst uh, a lot of the entrepreneurs in this space, at least in the U.S. So you're definitely not the only one. <laughs> yeah. And I, I just want to say that, like, if I can move the conversation just a little bit through this podcast, is that, like, you always hear, like, there's no regulatory clarity. There's no regulatory clarity. Like, that's not the point, right? Like, so we don't know if ETH is a security or not a security. Like, that's an important question, a huge question, right? But there's so much more going on and there's so much more innovation happening. So for instance, what's a, what's a two of two multi-sig and what does that imply? When you have a two of two multi-sig, who's controlling the asset? Who's transmitted the asset? How does that fit into, you know, money transmitter laws and how does that transmit it into like the state money transmitter laws and how does that affect the CFTC's view of the object, right? Like you've just got to think about so many different regimes and so many different rules. And, you know, this country has very well-developed regulations for financial services, which makes sense, right, given, like, the history of all sorts of things happening when there aren't regulation. But, you know, what this is is, like, a new way to transact. And what we're doing is we're having to fit this into these old rules. And, you know, what? that would even be fine if it was just one set of old rules, like you have in, in the, the, Japan, the Japan FSA approach. Um, but here you just have lots of them. So like, you really don't know, um, you really don't know how many of these rules can affect you, right? You have money services businesses in each state, you have um, money transmission, like the FinCEN regulations, you have CFTC, you have SEC. So it's not just a sort of like lack of clarity, but it's the fact that there are a lot of rules. You have to do some really creative lawyering, which I personally actually really like. Like I enjoy thinking about like all these old laws and how um, how exactly like our escrows affect these specific laws and how they fit in. I find that like intellectually fascinating. Like I am a professor at the end of the day, so I like love this stuff. But um, <laughs> it's complicated, and if you make a mistake, like the the penalties are high, right? And 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 so it really sort of prevents you from even taking the risk, right? Because you know. Like, I think this is the interpretation, but like, who knows what the regulator is going to think because, you know, no one's really done this before. And so uh, how much risk am I willing to take to actually deploy this technology in the U.S. when I don't know exactly how the regulator might apply this? Or maybe there's like an attorney general in some state that doesn't like the way I did this and comes after me. So, like, it's, it's just so complicated um, and the penalties are so high that it really um, is stifling our ability to launch products in the country. Hmm. Okay. Well, that's... 
a grim place to end this, but uh, hopefully that's an important <laughs> statement that some regulators will hear. Well, it has been so great having you on the show. This was just, yeah, this was an amazing episode. Um, so thanks again for coming on Unchained. Thank you. I'm sorry to end it on the, the sad note, but let me try to end it on a happier <laughs> note, <laughs> which is that um, I do think that there's just like a massive number of um, technological innovations happening right now in this space. Um, you know, people kind of trying to do things that, that don't really make sense in the physical world or in the traditional world, but do make sense and are possible when we use blockchains. And so like, I'm really excited about you know, pushing this type of field forward. Um, and like, I, I just am looking for um, kind of places where we can we can get this out there and get people using it. And, and I do think that things will kind of fall in line. Um, and this innovation will be accepted. But, um, you know, we're really we're really like at a place where we're experimenting. And I'm sort of looking forward to seeing all of the new um, all of the new things that different people in this space are working on. Yeah, me too. All right, great. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Sharon and Arwen, check out the show notes inside your podcast player. If you are not yet signed up for my email newsletter, go to unchainedpodcast.com right now to get my thoughts on the top crypto stories of the week. And be sure to check out our new channel on YouTube. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Fractal Recording, Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, and Rich Straffolino. Thanks for listening.